Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. This week on the Garden DC podcast, I'm joined by Wendy Kang Spray, author of The Chinese Kitchen Garden. Welcome, Wendy. Hi, Kathy. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining me. So we have known each other for years. <laughs> I was about to say decades. It might even be two decades. Maybe. Um, so we've had a few mutual friends and um been traveling in the same circles and then all of a sudden I heard one day that Wendy was publishing a book on Asian vegetables and edibles and I was like what (laughs) so tell me about that journey a little bit well well first of all I don't know if you remember but you worked with my husband at the Smithsonian way back in the day Mm. even before we knew each other from the gardening community yeah I was a docent at the Natural History Museum part of the Smithsonian in the discovery room. And for those who have been to the discovery room, that's the one part of the museum you're allowed to touch things and explore things. Yeah. So that, that definitely is like two decades, I think. Yes. (laughs) But yeah. Yeah. So I, um, I started off by doing, um, I started off with a blog actually, because Oh, I guess two decades ago, um, shortly after I started gardening, there really were no gardeners in my in my immediate um, community. I didn't know anyone in my neighborhood. I didn't I didn't have any friends who um, gardened. It was it was a pastime for um, for a, for pe- people I didn't know. So I decided one day that I was going to start a blog. Um, and that was the greenishthumb.net. And um, the blog was a great outlet for me because if you're a gardener, and especially if you like taking pictures, which I guess everybody likes taking pictures these days, um, it was a really good outlet and a place to post all those things in the garden and just, you know, various wonders like bugs and, you know, funny stories and, you know, things that nobody in my family would care about. But I found like an international um garden blogging community, which was really awesome. Um, and then I started, I started writing about the Chinese vegetables that I was growing because they were things that I was growing or that my dad was growing. Um, and, and honestly, I thought it was really interesting and I thought I had something to say. So I started um, blogging about those things and, um, those, those posts became very popular and, um, I'm sure some someone along the way said you should write a book about this. And I probably was like, I should. I'm going to write a book about this. And that's how uh, the Chinese Kitchen Garden came about. Great. And when you started the blog and first started gardening for yourself, was it more on the ornamental side of gardening or were you always into food gardening? Oh, no. It started off as food gardening, I think. There was, there was a day my daughter... 
um, my, my older kid who is now in her twenties, but she, she must've been, I think she was seven. She was like, let's have a garden. And I was like, okay. And then, you know, you imagine your first garden with some lettuces and some carrots. Um, so that it started off with a little, um, small L shaped garden. And then, um, if you're a gardener, you know that it's very, very addictive. Every year since then, the garden has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. It's expanded to pots. It's expanded to, um, you know, the side yard and then the front yard. And then, and then the, the uh, obsession with the ornamental started. So I do love um, perennials too. And then, and landscaping, you know, then you, you got to get into the mm-hmm. landscaping too. So I started, um, doing some big projects in my, in my yard. It's just, it's very, um, very addicting. Yeah. I was going to ask if you have any turf grass left. Um, very little, very little, but you know, the funny thing about, I'll tell you the a quick funny thing about my backyard is that it, it was really kind of a small yard, but, um, I, I, instead of having, like, I have a big slope in my backyard. Okay. So it was from, if you're looking out the backyard, there is a, a big slope that takes maybe the back third of my yard. So just a real sliver of grass, which, you know, my husband likes grass. I will say he likes grass because he is from Florida where he says that there is no grass. It's just sand. Mm-hmm. So he really likes to have some grass. Um, so I get that, you know, I'm not going to begrudge him for that. Um, but when I did this landscaping project in my backyard with this, with stone, I actually changed the shape of it. So instead of taking up that back third, I changed the shape. So it wasn't straight, but there was more of a curve to it. And it probably sucks up more of my backyard, but the backyard, it's like some magic happened with the shape of it. And it looks, it almost looks bigger. It definitely looks more beautiful. Um, but you know, it's, it's definitely more, much more attractive. Hmm. And for our listeners, can you describe where you garden as, I think you're in Potomac, Maryland. So you're zone seven, I believe, and pretty moderate, um, climate. So for those who, who might be listening on the other side of the world, um, we have four seasons and (laughs) definitely, uh, hot, humid summers, not too much snow in the winter. And how would you describe our growing climate? Yeah, that sounds that sounds pretty right. Um, I'm actually in Rockville, which is right next to Potomac. I grew up in Potomac, but um, you know, so it's it's I have like a little. I, I live in a single family home. It's a, it's in a suburb, so we have like a small patch of yard. It's not great, and I would say that um, all that stuff you mentioned is right on. But they're also like you know, when they talk about microclimates, you have to, you have to accommodate. Mm-hmm. We definitely have some, some issues. Like, you know, we have a lot of, you know, this is a, a pretty um, long established neighborhood. So we have some tall, um, you know, some, some really tall maples and big trees that create a lot of shade in my backyard. So um, I don't have the, the most ideal sun situation, I probably don't have like the best circulation in my backyard. So I kind of have to deal with, um, you know, be a little more careful about making sure I have good drainage. Um, so, so definitely some unique problems that I have to deal with in my little 
suburban backyard. Mm -hmm. And I think those are very common for especially a lot of older neighborhoods where you have Mm -hmm. big trees that have filled in, especially in the back for whatever sunshine you used to have. And then occasionally a tree comes down and you go to full sun overnight. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly what happened to us. We had Mm -hmm. a giant silver maple and um, Scott did not want to get rid of it, but it was dying. And, um, you know, it was probably going to, it was probably going to go right through the roof at some point. So, uh, yeah, we went from a lot of shade to, um, much more sun. Oh, and then we had our rats. So, uh, we had some rats tear up the backyard for a while. I, I'm not ashamed to admit it. It seems to be a common problem as I can tell from my Facebook neighborhood, my neighborhood Facebook page. So, um, you know, they have presented some problems with digging up holes in my yard and, um, you know, things like that. Hmm. And then, and then there's the neighbor behind us that, that planted some bamboo many years ago. And every now and then, you know, some of those runners have traveled, gosh, probably like 30 feet or more into my backyard breaking up my garden beds. So, you know, we, we, we suburban gardeners have a lot of things to deal with too. And do you think maybe that that bamboo grove is is what brought some of those rodents to the neighborhood? Um, I guess anything's possible. I, I mean, I we you know we have some raccoons too, and I think the I've I've, I've seen the raccoons up in up in that area um, taking shelter up in there, but I don't think so. I think it's it's our you know it's it's the garbage and just. Mm-hmm. And just yeah. the fact that you're humans and <laughs> wherever humans are, vermin are, basically. Oh, yeah. and we also heard that we also suspected it was from um, from from Rockville Town Center, which I'm very close to, if you know Rockville Town Center, and mm-hmm. the, the restaurants and businesses um, closing and a lack of food for the rats. Yes. So we heard it's possible they made their way into our neighborhoods because of that. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what happened down. to yeah. in downtown Silver Spring where my community garden is. Um, it's now circled like every eight to to 12 feet with a rat trap outside the community garden because of all those restaurants and everything closing and you know the college next to me as well you know you go from full dumpsters to no dumpsters overnight and they have to go searching for food somewhere so yeah the the suburban or urban city life (laughs) but so let's talk a little bit about in the chinese kitchen garden your book you're a uh, father is a diehard edible gardener and you didn't learn from him as you were growing up. You came to it later. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it was my sister and I, and I think we probably learned through osmosis. I mean, we always had, we always had gardens, but I think he was, he was, he was probably a bit of a control freak because we would always ask for a piece of garden and, you know, he, he wouldn't let us grow what we wanted to grow. We had to grow hmm. like whatever he wanted us to grow. And then, you know, the, 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 the moment we, we were, we forgot to water, he'd take it over and we didn't really get a chance until we were adults, I think. But I think that we definitely um, learned a lot. Um, we definitely held the hose and watered plants um, during the summers a lot. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, th- I think we definitely learned as we grew up. And you also got to benefit by what you ate, um, of course. 
Oh yeah, for sure. Both of my parents are amazing cooks. Um, so my dad, you know, my, my parents, we, we, we it, it's, it's, it's really wonderful to think about when, when you're a gardener, you really think about, um, the things you eat seasonally, you know, you, you have your, you, you have your, um, spring salads and you have your first BLT when your tomatoes are ripe. And then, you know, you have your butternut squash soup in the fall. Um, you know, and we, we have that too. We have that too with our, um, with our Asian vegetables too. So having, having gardeners and cooks for parents was made for a pretty, pretty decent life growing up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like that, uh, your mention of seasonality and, and food and cooking, and we'll circle back to that in a minute, but I do want to talk about that. I think you might describe yourself as a foodie and your family as well. And that might be a big driver in why you want to grow fresh and delicious things. Oh yeah, for sure. We are all, we are all definitely foodies. I, I would say I, I'm somebody who really needs to rely on recipes. Um, I'm a good cook. I'm a really good cook. Actually. I, th- I think that when you really like food, it's easy to be a good cook because you kind of know what's right, what's not right and how to tweak it. But I will say um, in my family, and now I will add my 16-year-old and my um, and also my adult daughter to that, they, they're all really creative. Like they can take things and figure out what to do with them. And, you know, I can cook them well, but I really um, am a little bit lacking in the creativity department. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been looking, I think, on your Instagram posts of some of the baked goods that I've been like, hmm... Maybe I need <laughs> that is my kid. Mm-hmm. She's also she's a very good um she's a very good um like intuitive and creative cook too. And um and you know, with, with quarantine, I guess she's a little more limited with her activities. So she actually likes to make us dinner and she's really great with just looking at what's in the garden or what's in the refrigerator and just putting things together, um, you know, whipping up a sauce. She does, uh, you know, she, she's, she's half Chinese, um, but she's also a very big foodie, but she can make the Asian food. Like she's very good. Both of my kids are very good. Well, I would invite myself over for dinner <laughs> if it wasn't for COVID. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, you're making me super hungry, um, which brings us to what we grow in the garden and what actually makes it to the table for eating. So when you plan your garden every year, do you start off in the wintertime with seed catalogs? How do you plan what you want to grow and how much you want to grow for feeding your family? Yeah, I do. I, it's, it's so, there's, there's such a routine once you've been gardening for a while. And, um, and I, I've always worked in schools. So winter break was always my time to, that's the time when all the gardening catalogs have arrived and I can just sit and kind of take inventory of all my seeds. I do like to start, um, everything from seed if I can, um, every now and then there's something I find at the farmer's market or something that I just want to tuck in. But, um, but generally everything that I, I, um, I mean, it's, if, if you have not grown vegetables from seeds, you should, because, I mean, some of the, some of the category, some of the catalogs are like an inch thick. I mean, if you want to grow a tomato, you would have your choice of, you know, tomatoes on 40 different pages. So I just feel like there's no comparison. And especially if you're looking for um, some of the harder to find vegetables, um, 
seed catalogs are the way to go. But yeah, uh, so winter break, that's when I usually grab them all and see what I have and see what I want. Um, Throughout the year, I also, sometimes I forget about certain things I want to try. So I do have like a, I do have one notebook that's just for all my gardening stuff that I can jot quick ideas down so I can, you know, kind of consult that and, and, um, and, you know, for example, one year I forgot to grow sweet potatoes and at sweet potato digging time, everyone was posting pictures of, of like digging their sweet potatoes. And I was so jealous. So I had to make a list and, and, um, make sure that I, I had that there, um, but yeah, I, I usually start seeds around this time of year um, after I get organized and and um, and then things are ready for transplanting by May. Hmm. So I've had you um, speak at our local seed exchange for National Seed Swap Day, and you've spoken a bit on seed starting and microgreens, uh, but usually where we get together every year, the one time a year is the Rooting DC conference, which is taking place this weekend virtually online. So kind of missing being able to see you at that. And you usually give a couple talks on um, related topics there, don't you? Yeah, yeah. We have so much um, around us that is just so amazing. And I love that Rooting DC has, um, has, you know, put on this virtual thing this year. Um, your seed exchange also, I love, I mean, it's so fun to be able to just, well, it's, it's such a great community activity, you know, to, to bring some Mm -hmm. seeds, share some seeds and, um, you know, the variety of seeds you find there are just amazing. So I would say to, I would suggest all gardeners look for some sort of local seed exchange. Mm-hmm. It's very fun. Yeah, and this year, due to COVID, we've pushed it back to um, early spring for our dates and hoping, uh, knock on wood, knock on my desk here, that we can maybe still go on live, not quite the same format as we used to, and maybe smaller numbers, but still planning mm-hmm. on that. And we'll we'll be sharing more details on that in a future podcast. Oh, good. Um, but I do want to talk about um, starting seeds indoors versus outdoor direct sowing in the garden. And I, I think you do some of both. Yeah, um, I do. I feel like there are some, some you know, some of the, the plants with um, some of the vegetables with that, re- mostly the fruiting vegetables um, that, that require that longer season. I start indoors um, just so I have the time. So it's, you know, the, a lot of the peppers, eggplants, um, Thai eggplants are really fun to grow. If you haven't tried Thai eggplants, um, and Chinese eggplants, of course, are beautiful. Um, and you know, those are, those are usually great to start inside. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And those are a lot, um, you want to get a jump on the season because they're in that same family with peppers and tomatoes, um, so if you were to wait for direct sowing, you would maybe not be harvesting till September, I would guess for your eggplants. Right, right. And, uh, speaking of eggplants, do you experiment with some of the newer varieties or do you go for the tried and true that you've had every year? Well, I will say I have some pretty good luck with the Thai eggplants because I feel like they, um, they, they don't require as much time to, to mature. Um, I have a big problem with flea beetles 
um, mm-hmm. eating up all my leaves and, and it, it really kind of prevents the fruits from even ever developing. Um, I, I have found that growing in containers in different areas, kind of rotating them out, um, help, but you know, at this point I feel like I, I always like to experiment. So every year I like to try something new and something different just to see. And then I'm really starting to hone in on things I really like, things that grow well and things that are easy. Um, I feel like I have turned into a much, very big neglectful gardener these days. Um, so, so I really, I really like my plants to be as independent as mm-hmm. possible. Well, yeah, so. as low maintenance as possible. And then you get to focus on the fun part, which is harvesting and eating them. Right. Yep. right. Yeah. Flea beetles can be such a pain. And usually the first year or two, you're not too bothered with them. And then all of a sudden they find you. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I found a cover cloth, like a remake cover helps sometimes. And I've also mm-hmm. found that planting them out later, Um, so after mid June, um, you know, starting the seedlings inside and maybe hardening them off later on, um, gets you over that hump of the worst of the flea beetles coming into the garden. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I wanted to ask next about microgreens and how you recommend, um, a home gardener, maybe who's never grown under lights before, maybe to start their first tray of microgreens. I think that's a, that's a good entry. I was going to call it entry drug into, <laughs> into, <laughs> into indoor seed starting. Cause I think indoor seed starting the whole light system, the whole, you know, timing thing can be intimidating for people. So that might be something that is a, a gentle way to, to be entered into that type of growing. Yeah, I think so. I think so. It's, it, I also love, even though, you know, even though I'm, I feel okay about starting seeds inside, I love growing microgreens, especially this time of year when, um, you know, it's cold out. Well, today's an exception. Today's an exceptionally warm day, but you know, this time of year it's cold, it's wet, you know, gardeners live in fear of going into the soil when it's wet because, you know, you don't want to come pack the soil. So it's like when you're kind of itching for, for something to do in the garden, it is great to just sit inside, you know, grab some nice containers from the recycling bin. You you know, you only need, you don't need a ton of soil. You don't need your container to be super deep because you're, you don't, you're not growing a super deep root system. You're just growing, um, you know, tiny, tiny micro-sized greens. So, um, you know, you, you pretty much have the materials. You just need some seeds and you need some soil. Um, and you don't need grow lights either because um, when you're, when you're starting, okay, if, if you're starting your eggplants at home, you really need a light system because you need your light to be, you know, very close to the plant. If you try to put your eggplant in the window, more than likely by May, you're going to have a very, very, very tall and skinny eggplant (laughs) that might get blown down in the first wind. So um, microgreens, you know, it's, it's okay if they get quote unquote leggy because once they get, you know, a couple of inches, you're going to cut them down and eat them anyway. So um, microgreens are fun and healthy and delicious. Yeah. And they're, you know, so quick to start from seed and then you could be enjoying them just a couple weeks later. 
Yes. And very rewarding. So, you know, a great project to do with kids or grandkids. Um, you know, you're, you, you, you could have a, a grandchild visiting for a week and be able to do this project from start to finish. And it would be super wow. fun. What are your favorite seeds to do microgreens from? Because it used to be that you had to go and buy individual seed packs and figure it out yourself. But now they actually sell specific microgreen mixes, which is great to see. Yeah, because they, um, they're, they're, it's it, a lot of times they're cheaper and, um, the microgreens are actually super cool because you will also find that they have, they, you know, they're, I mean, it's like, duh, of course they're going to taste like, you know, a, a mustard microgreen is going to taste like mustard. Um, but it's, it's just kind of interesting, you know, it's kind of interesting to have this tiny, tiny baby plant and it actually is has that sharp bite mm-hmm. like mustard if you're growing mustard. Um, but you know, but sunflower, sunflowers are great because sunflower greens, because they're really kind of sturdy and, you know, you can cut a handful and just add them to your salad and it just adds, you know, good crunch and nutrition and plus it looks nice. Um, so yeah, yeah they have a nice nuttiness to them. I find, um, I'm always mm-hmm. surprised how sharp, like the radish, the tiny, tiny little radish greens are. Yeah. And then the ones that like are, are in the brassica family, like broccoli or something, um, they taste like the full plant, but you know, just packed in yep. that, that little, that little tiny package. And then they're so nutritious as well. Mm-hmm. So in your book, not only do you share how to grow things, but you also share recipes and some are traditional recipes some are from your handed down from your family and one I wanted to talk about was the lotus root so for me who uh, one of my hats is uh, editing the international water garden journal and we talk a lot about water lilies and lotus but not eating them so <laughs> so growing lotus for edible plants. Is that a little bit easier? Do you harvest it yourself or how do you grow it? I think that if you, my, my, um, if you, if you, if you get the Chinese kitchen garden book, you will find that it is filled with amazing pictures of this beautiful property. And that is, um, first of all, my, the amazing photographer, who um, took such beautiful pictures of vegetables of all things um, for this book, but it's the property is my parents and they have, um, they have eight acres and six acres of it is a pond. So I would say that if you have a very, very large pond and you're able to spare Mm -hmm. um, chopping up the, the Lotus roots, then feel free. (laughs) But um, if I were to, to um, create a pond in my backyard and, and successfully grow Lotus flowers, I would probably just enjoy them for the flowers. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, one thing about, about this book that I think is really neat that um, people have commented that they've really liked is that, um, and especially talking with um, with your listeners who who I know are all over the place, but you know there may be a, a, a good deal in our area, um, which is very diverse. We have a lot of Asian supermarkets and international supermarkets where mm-hmm. you find all these um, crazy vegetables that you've never seen before, and you're like, "What do I do with this? Um, how do I eat this?" Um, and I feel like, you know, you could use my book almost as a guide to help you figure out 
you know, what it tastes like, how to prepare it and how we might use it and how you might use it in your own recipes. Um, so, so with the Lotus root, I would probably um, use the info in my book to figure out what to do with the Lotus root that I buy at the Asian supermarket. Yeah, that's a great point. And especially because uh, if you do have a large pond and Lotus can be a kind of a monster, a, little, a bit of a thug, so you might not mind pulling some of that out <laughs> for eating mm-hmm. and experimenting with. So one of the unusual vegetables that you might find at an Asian grocery store might be a bitter melon. And uh wanted you to talk a little bit about um, how to harvest, how to know, I guess, when it's ripe. So do I wait for that point where it splits open on the end and it shows like it's red tongue or flesh inside? Or do I grab it a lot earlier than that? Oh, that is such a neat one to talk about. Um you know it's ready when that when it it's kind of shiny when it becomes kind of shiny and um and and before it gets to the point where it splits open and the you see that red um goopy stuff inside um if if you cut open okay so you recognize a bitter melon by the bumps on it you know um and when you when you cut it open it will be white and just pithy inside with big seeds. And that's generally the point where you eat the bitter melon and you're, you're scooping out the pith and throwing that away. So you're just eating the outside of the fruit. Um, And then uh, the crazy thing about it is that as that, as bitter melon matures, that white stuff turns into that red goopy stuff. And by the time it gets red and goopy, it is, um, it, it, it pretty much looks and has the texture of like roasted red pepper, but it also becomes sweet, which is crazy. Um, and, and as I was writing this book, my dad was saying that when he grew bitter melon in China, my parents really spent most of their lives, um, most of their adult lives in Hong Kong. But when my dad was in China, he actually grew bitter melon for the red goopy stuff as like a dessert kind of thing. And he didn't actually know that in, um, you know, Cantonese cuisine, um, you, you, eat, you eat the bitter outside. So I thought that was a pretty neat story. Yeah, because it's such an intimidating looking plant when it does get to that red goopy stage. And so it's so yeah. fun. And that's one I would say definitely grow with kids, you know, and that pretty easy from seed, right? Well, the seeds are really real. The seeds are big and they're, they have a really hard seed coat. So that's, that's one you're going to want to just file down a little bit or nick a little bit or um, soak for a little bit before you plant. But that's, that's definitely a fun one. And, you know, years ago, like years and years ago, it was, you know, I would talk about bitter melon and it would be like, oh my gosh, what is this thing? But I feel like these days, it's not, it's like old news. It's like, tell us something that's, that we don't mm-hmm. know, you know? And um, it's, a lot of people know it because there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of research that shows it's, it's good to, um, it's good for diabetics as it lowers blood sugar. And I'm not a doctor and I'm not giving medical advice. Um, but I'm just sharing with you that, that this is what people have told me. And this, this is what I've read about too. 
Um, so, so people, so I've, I've had people tell me that their, um, dietitians or nutritionists have recommended that they, um, add bitter melon to their diets. Um, so it's pretty interesting. I had one guy say that he would juice it and he would actually, you know, I, I just mentioned that when you eat it, you eat the outside and you scoop out just that pithy inside and the seeds are hard. But this guy said he would juice the whole thing and just put the whole, the, just take the whole thing and just throw it into, um, uh, what's it called? Um, is it the Vitamix? That's like super mm-hmm. powerful. Yeah. yeah. He would just throw the bitter melon in there and, um, and just drink it. He, he would also throw apples in there, just throw a whole <laughs> apple in there and just, you know, I guess whatever he saw, just throw it in there. So, um, so it's definitely a little more common these days than it was back in the day. Yeah. Once, um, there's a study comes out and shows that it has great medicinal properties, then it starts to kind of explode. Like, you know, in recent mm-hmm. years with, um, the elder berries of course and sambucus and i'm like the price has tripled in the last year i'm not too happy about that <laughs> yeah, yeah but yeah, yeah some things come and go you know in fashion and trends as well and i was going to ask for seasonally that we were talking about earlier is there a particular season in the year for edibles that you really look forward to say when the persimmons ripen or a certain harvest comes on? Um, I, that's a good question. I love that question. I, I, maybe I would say the snow peas because, um, Mm. okay, because they're, they're one of the earliest ones. So, you know, it's pretty exciting to just be indoors all winter. And then now you're out in the garden and it's probably one of the first things that I actually harvest. So um, I would probably say snow peas. And also I love, I just love the architecture of the whole plant. Like I love the tendrils and I love the way the snow peas look, especially with the tiny little dried flower on the end. And, um, and especially the way they look with the with the sun behind it, like it's and you see the tiny tiny little um, peas inside. I I just love. I think I love that, and and I also love them because um, you can you can grow them for for their shoots too. So um, and I've written about this in my book, but snow pea shoots are a very um, delicious, desirable. And more, it's probably more expensive than the actual snow peas if you were to buy them in the store. Um, and I mentioned that they're on the secret Chinese menu at your favorite Chinese restaurant mm. because you know the one that they hand to the Chinese people. Um, it's 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 usually just a dish of stir fry, very lightly, very lightly sautéed snow pea shoots, and um, you know just probably with some garlic and maybe a little bit of salt, nothing else. Um, but you can grow them yourself. And the way I usually do it is I'll usually do like a row of um, snow peas. And at the end of the row, whatever I have left in my hand, I will just throw them in a pile. And um, those are my designated shoots. It just helps me kind of remember where everything is. That's why I do it like that. But that's my like designated snow pea shoots area. And then when those are like maybe 10, 12 inches or, or maybe even less, um, I'll, ju- I'll just cut those down and eat those. Yeah, that's a good point because you could, you know, cannibalize all of your plants and never have snow peas. <laughs> I could say the same thing also with uh, squash plants and squash blossoms. 
Um, oh, yeah. So never ever letting the squash blossom actually get pollinated and develop into the squash because you're so greedy for those uh, squash flowers themselves. Are you a big fan of squash flowers? Yes. And you know what? That, that makes me think that it would be a good idea to do with that too, because I want the squash flowers, but then I don't want to eat them because they might turn into mm -hmm. um, a butternut squash one day. And um, yeah, so it would be nice to, it would be nice to have a designated area for squash flowers too. I like that. Yeah. I have a couple neighbors um, who own Chinese restaurants in the area and they use their back driveway. They kind of created this scaffolding um, kind of like a, almost like a overhead pergola, I would call it, but you know, just out of old bamboo poles and they grow their squash vines up and over these scaffolding. And I see them out there every few days snipping off the squash blossoms and those vines definitely never develop into full mm. squash. And I'm always like, wow, I need to do that one day. <laughs> just, oh, yeah. You know, yeah, I like that. And you know what else is really delicious is um, our chayote leaves. I don't know if you've tried growing chayote, no. but um, my parents um, tried to grow them from seed one year and they did not produce the fruit, but we did eat the greens all year, all summer, and they were the most delicious greens I've ever had. I think they were my favorite, like all time favorite greens. Yeah, and that's a great point that there are a lot of plants that, you know, we can grow for the fruit and the end product, but the earlier stages can be just as delicious, if not even better. And then there's the ones that we can let even go to seed, and the seed itself is also part of the edible process, like radishes. I love radish seeds. Mm. Are there any uh, plants that you grow to save the seed or to use the seed in cooking? Um, well, you remind me of Luffa gourds, which I would highly recommend um, gardeners try if they haven't tried already, because, you know, the Luffa gourds are great because, and there are two different, there are two kinds of Luffa gourds. There are, there's the angled Luffa, which is long and skinny with ridges, and you, you need to pare the ridges off before you eat, eat them. Um, and then there is the smooth luffa, aka sponge luffa, and that's what I'm getting at. Um, and these and the the smooth or sponge luffas are usually shorter; they're fatter around, and um, and you would harvest them young. So you would harvest them when they're just like a few inches, like maybe five, six inches um, long, and and you can use them just like summer squash. But if you forget any, which you probably will because they are super prolific, um, they will turn into the scrubby luffa sponges, bath sponges um, that you would buy um, at the store. So, so that, that's a really neat thing to try growing if you haven't grown before. Mm -hmm. And ha I know it's a little bit of a process to let them dry and then I guess extract the seeds from those. Yeah, and you know there there are different ways to do it. The way I did the way I do it is I I literally will just shake them onto the floor, and I know that sounds crazy, but there are so many seeds, and it's it's really easy to just kind of shake them somewhere, and um you know once they're in a pile, it's really easy to sweep up. So that that's just how I will do it, and I feel like it's it's easy. It's an easy project. You you leave the luffas on the vine until the very end of the season. One day you'll be like, you know what? I need to go bring those in. 
you'll bring them in and you'll be like um, mystified because they are, they will be light and you can just peel off the skin, which is probably, you know, partially dead and dry anyway. And then you'll just be left with those, um, with those sponges. It's crazy. Yeah, I think that's a project I need to tackle this year. Just grow my own sponges. Have you <laughs> no, that's, oh my that's gosh. One, one plant that I'm like, hmm, you know, I'll see it occasionally in the community garden or elsewhere, but I've just never felt the desire. But now I'm thinking, hmm. Oh, you should. They're, they're great holiday gifts. You know, I mean, you know, it, I think it's, and you can do so many different things with them too. Like if you don't want to just give someone a mm-hmm. sponge, um, which I have given people sponges with like, you know, a nice bar of soap or something. You can, you can also, um, you can cut them open and kind of like, you know, cut off the little connecting fibers inside and and it'll be like a flat sheet that you can do things with. So like I made projects with, you know, like a, like a bath mitt with a scrubby side and then like a smooth side. So like I bought a towel and I sewed it together. So I had a smooth side and a scrubby side, or you can um, put, put, bits in a food processor, grind them up and have like an exfoliating kind of soap thing, like make, you know, make some soap or whatever and add the ground up, um, luffa bits too. Or if you were to make soap and just cut a chunk of the luffa and put it in a bar of soap and, you know, you have like a great gardener's gift to scrub mud off your fingers. I mean, it's, it's perfect. And, and it's very fun. It's really neat. Yeah. That does sound like a perfect gardening gift to have that that texture and that scrubbiness there added to it. And you could say it came from my garden. <laughs> yes. And what if you gave them seeds too, yeah. so they could do it themselves. <laughs> and just keep, keep the chain on going. It's like that Amish friendship bread. You just keep, keep going. And speaking of things that spread from one garden to the other, I was going to talk about that bamboo that was coming in from your neighbor and you talk about in the book um, your father's bamboo grove and how he harvests. I think in the, is it mid spring to late spring the bamboo shoots. Can you talk a little bit about that process? Yeah, it's a very narrow window that you can um, you can harvest these spring shoots. And and I will I'll remind you again that my my parents have eight acres, so they have enough room to um, to do this bamboo um, grove. I will also say that e- even though you know, having said that, it's still a lot of work. Like he still spends a lot of time every year managing it. Um, and of course, you know, there are things you can do if you want to, like you could, um, you know, um, bury like a thick barrier into the ground to prevent runners. But, you know, unless you, you, you have a larger piece of property and you you know, you're not going to annoy your neighbors, um, you, you probably just don't want to do that. But anyway, um, what you could do if you wanted is you could, um, if, if you know of that stand of bamboo somewhere and you know that it's not being sprayed with pesticides or anything like that, um, you could forage during that sweet spot in the spring. It's like kind of early to mid spring. And um, if you've never had, okay, I would say fresh bamboo. It's kind of like, it's kind of like corn. It's like the difference between 
um, fresh corn on the cob mm-hmm. in the summer from a farmer versus a can of Food Lion brand corn. You know what I mean? Or it's like green beans, like you know what you grow in the garden versus something something from the can. I mean, you have not had bamboo shoots unless you've had fresh bamboo shoots. And it would be hard. It's hard to find fresh bamboo shoots. Like the bamboo shoots you get at your Chinese restaurant, those are not fresh bamboo shoots. That's from a can. And um, and I'm I'm gonna be honest. A lot of times, um, when when I have when I've had dishes with bamboo shoots in them, it the you can tell the bamboo shoots have turned. Like there's like a funky smell or taste. It's it's actually so gross that if I know a, a dish comes with bamboo shoots, I will say no bamboo shoots just because I really don't want to have to experience that. But if you were to forage for bamboo shoots, you will find that they have, um, I guess, almost a corn-like taste because, you know, it's like a very fresh kind of, um, kind of like clear, uh, um, sweet, crisp taste. Mm-hmm. And they're, um, and they're, they're very delicious. Yeah, I was going to say they're both grasses. They're both in the grass family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but you, if you're, if you are going to forage for bamboo shoots, um, and in the book, I do show pictures of how you would cut them. Um, and part, I think, I feel like part of the mystery of Asian vegetables is how you actually prepare them. Um, so with the bamboo shoots, part of the trick is figuring out how to, how to, you know, how to harvest them, how to cut them, how to, how to find the actual heart of the bamboo shoot that that's the part that you eat. Um, and then once you have that, you're okay. But you do need to boil that. You do need to boil the bamboo shoots in water um, for like half an hour and dump out the water and before you use them. Good tip. And I will look at some of my neighboring, <laughs> I guess, bamboo stands, maybe a little less with the stink eye sometimes, <laughs> <laughs> since we, we can eat some of those. And definitely bamboo was useful for in the garden as well, of course, for making poles and, you know, supports and trellises and other things. Oh, yeah. And my dad has a chipper too. So he, he actually puts his... Um, bamboo canes through the chipper and you know he's got some long-lasting mulch out of that too so Hmm. so what is one thing that you've grown in the past and that you've decided is just not worth it like either it takes too much effort to grow it or too much effort to process it hmm that's a good question too um you know maybe the eggplant eggplant's really difficult for me and the bang is not worth the buck I think and honestly I feel like because I'm a little bit of a neglectful gardener and my soil is not always at its prime um, I, I don't feel like my garden really supports heading lettuces very well um, because because I usually because because of the because of the the pests mm-hmm. and the bugs um, they usually get, get my things before I do, but pretty much everything else is, uh, every, pretty much everything else is a go. Mm-hmm. And I would say that's true for a lot of us mid-Atlantic growers that the cut and come again, lettuces and mm-hmm. greens are just so much easier for us than those, even the tiny micro heading lettuces that form small heads. I mean, they're so beautiful in pictures and you see these coming out of the Salinas Valley in California and you drool over them, right? 
<laughs> but it's right. it's tough for us because we do have such short shoulder seasons in the spring and fall and either it gets too cold too fast or it gets too hot too fast. Right. And that's one reason why um, Asian greens are, are so good in the autumn. So I, you know, fall is usually the best time to, to try the bok choy. And um, my favorite is probably tot soy, which is also known as flat cabbage. It's, it's, it's like, it's, um, it's, it's, it's similar to bok choy. So if you've tried bok choy, you could probably, you, you could definitely do tot soy and you might actually like it better and you might have better luck with it actually. Um, it's also super hearty. So um, I love when I've started tot soy in the, in the fall and it just overwinters. And then in the spring, everyone's like, oh my gosh, you're the best gardener. And I'm like, yeah, I know, <laughs> but it's actually just the tot soy that has overwintered from the mm-hmm. fall. Um, so that's a great one to grow. And I know the last two winters have been pretty mild. So we had some nice overwintering of some of our lettuces and herbs. Uh, how was this winter for you? Um, th- this, this, it, it's been okay. I feel like it's been okay. My backyard has been very wet I feel like, um, but you know, I have the cold frame going and a couple of things in there. I have some Swiss chard in there and some tot soy. So, um, there's a couple of things here and there. Okay, great. I was worried about those couple of ice storms and how that might have impacted things. Yeah, yeah. It's been pretty it's been pretty okay here, I I feel mm-hmm. like. So, you have a a Facebook group for I think it's for yourself and for the Chinese Kitchen Garden. What do you think uh, are some of the most common questions people ask on the Facebook group? Or are they just so expert in that group that they're just sharing their bounty of harvest? Oh, you know what? I feel like I've had a lot of people ask questions about um, where to find certain seeds. Um, so, you mm-hmm. know, people are looking for certain things. And um, the the group, the group is wonderful. The group is, the group... Um, it, I, I feel like it's at the point where I will approve the posts. And then, you know, if I, if I kind of don't keep up with it for a bit, people are interacting and sharing with each other. And, um, and it's great. I feel like it's, it's a good resource for people who are interested in things related to um, Chinese, loosely Chinese cooking, but mostly Chinese vegetables and, um, and also gardening. Um, there are people who post some, you know, cultural things here and there. Um, so, you know, so it's, it's a great play. It's a great thing to join if you want to just kind of keep up and, and see what's going on. So I would encourage people to look for it. It's the Chinese kitchen garden group. I do have a page for the book, Mm -hmm. but, um, I would, I would suggest people join the group so they can interact. And you mentioned that they're looking for seed sources on there. Do you have a, a couple of favorite seed catalogs for Chinese vegetables? Yeah, I do. I, I love um, Baker Creek heirloom seeds. I find can find everything there, and I also really like um, I really love Renee's garden seeds. Um, between those two companies, I can really get anything that I need. Terrific. And how else can our listeners get in contact with you besides joining that Facebook group? Um. It, anyone can email me at any time. If you were, if, you know, if, if someone wants to get in touch and please feel free, if you're, 
if you are, um, if you have some random question or if you have some random question, then the Chinese garden Facebook group, kitchen garden Facebook group would be great. Um, because you have everybody else's experiences too. But, you know, if you want to reach out to me, um, you can, you can find, you can find me on the internets. Um, it's wkspray at gmail.com. You can always email me. Um, you can, you can definitely find me on Facebook, but you're, you might have to deal with my political posts and um, pictures of my daughter's food and my cat and dog. <laughs> so if, if that's not for you and it's not for everyone, then, um, then email me. And I, I do have a, an author website. Um, I think it's uh, www.wendykyungspray.com. And there's a contact page there too. Um any place on the internet that you can contact me, I will get, get the message. And so, you know, people can feel free. Well, thank you, Wendy. And of course, I encourage everybody to run out and grab a copy or order a copy online of the Chinese Kitchen Garden. It is a beautiful book. Even if you don't intend to grow or eat any of these items, it is just a, a feast for the eyes. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you again, Wendy, for joining us. And my stomach is grumbling. <laughs> so Yeah, let's, let's, go, yeah, let's eat. go eat. Thank you again. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. Plant profile, snowdrops, Galanthus species. Snowdrops look delicate, but these tiny flowers are quite tough. The milk-white color of these small blooms is lovely set against a green backdrop of ground covers or small shrubs. They are one of the earliest plants to flower in the mid-Atlantic U.S. Their common name is a nod to the fact that they can come up through snow and ice and are not phased by either. Galanthus nivalis is the most common snowdrop and widely available in garden centers and plant catalogs. There are other varieties that you can collect, and some can be quite pricey. Galanthus nivalis floripleno is a lovely double form, and Galanthus atkinsi is known for the green heart shape marked at the top of the inner petals. Snowdrops are in the amaryllis family and grown from tiny bulbs. They are native to Southern Europe and Asia Minor. They are hardy from USDA Zone 3 to 7. Like many early blooming bulbs, they can be grown in deciduous shade spots, but not under evergreen shade. They prefer soil that is well-draining. Plant the bulbs in autumn about two inches below the soil level. They look best in masses and drifts. If you have an especially rare or interesting selection, then plant that in a spot where you can easily view it and keep an eye on it. If you have them planted in your lawn or among other perennials, let the snowdrop foliage die off naturally and do not cut it back prematurely. The energy for next year's flowers is collected in that foliage. They do not generally need fertilizing, but you can give them a fertilizer designed for use on tomatoes to encourage more rapid growth, if you like. 
Snowdrops increase slowly in clumps, and it is worthwhile to dig and divide them after their bloom cycle and the foliage is starting to die back. This can be done every three to five years or so. Plant them right away as a snowdrop is one bulb that hates to be left to dry out. Snowdrops, you can grow that. What's new this week? Well, the ice and snow have melted and the crocus are popping up all over my garden. I also had the snowdrops opening, of course, winter jasmine still putting on its show, winter aconite making its first appearance, and hellebores opening up. I hope your landscape is waking up to spring as well. And I wanted to say a quick thank you to some of our new listener supporters, Jing Fai Kai Pincus and Holly Richardson. Thank you so much for helping to support this podcast. And thank you to all our past and current listener supporters for all your assistance. And I wanted to talk a little bit about our garden book club. So Washington Gardener Magazine has a garden book club that meets quarterly. And we read gardening books like it sounds so we just met this week and we read a gentle plea for chaos by Mirabel osler and this is a british author the book has been out of print but reprinted a few times so still available at amazon and, and your used bookseller and the title might think you make you think this is about native gardening or wild gardening but actually she just wants a little bit more relaxed than a formal garden and more naturalized, I guess you would call it. So I want to read um, just a short paragraph that's kind of the, the, the focus of the book. And here she says, the very soul of a garden is shriveled by zealous regimentation. Off with her heads go the ferns, ladies' mantles or cranes bill, a mania for neatness, a lust for conformity, and away go atmosphere and sensuality. What is left? earth between plants the dreaded tedium of clumps of color with earth in between so is a garden is reduced to merely a place of plants step one two stop one two look down no need ever to look up for there is no mystery ahead to draw you on look down at each plant individually each is sublime undoubtedly for a plantsman this is heaven but where is lure and where, alas, is seduction and goose flesh on the arms. So I highly recommend this book. Our Garden Book Club had a great time discussing it. And if you want to join our Garden Book Club future discussions, uh, just check us out at washingtongardener.blogspot.com. We have set our next few books for the year. And because of COVID, of course, we're meeting on Zoom. So that means anyone, anywhere can join us for that Garden Book Club discussion. And speaking of, of joining me for discussions, I have um, a series of talks coming up with Homestead Gardens in Davidsonville, Maryland is where they're based, but the talks will be via Zoom and they are on the first Wednesday of the month, March through June. And the first one is coming up very quickly. That would be March 3rd at 7 p.m. Eastern time. And that is on cool season edibles. 
and that is free and you can sign up online at homesteadgardens.com just go to the events tab click on that and then you'll see a sign up to get the zoom link so hope you can join me for that session and some of the others coming up as well and then finally this monday is so exciting because this is the cherry blossom festival press conference and that's where they're going to announce when the cherry blossoms are predicted to bloom so i hope to share that with you all next week and it so feels like spring is finally here and happy gardening everyone Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter by going to anchor.fm backslash Kathy gents backslash support. For as little as 99 cents a month, you can become a listener supporter and we'll give you a shout out in a future episode. Another way to support Garden DC is to go to washingtongardener.com and subscribe to Washington Gardener Magazine. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. You can find Washington Gardener online at WashingtonGardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.